Hello and welcome to The Purple Paradigm. My name is Robin Chumaze and I am here to present to you episode two, Blackity Black and Woke AF. Um, so this episode was really, really an amazing evening of conversation. Um, we had our special guest, Andre Simone, who spoke to us for, I think, an hour and a half about his life, his activism, his music, Prince, of course. Um, and we also had great presentations by Dr. Lynn Stradford and also by uh, Carlita Lopez, um, all of which you will see in just a second. I am starting the show this way because we lost the first part of the show when we were recording it the other night. And I wanted to present to you our mission statement, which was what had gotten cut off. It sort of sets the stage for the episode, um, our goals, our missions, um, things that had come up in conversation between myself, Robin Chumaze, and Dr. Mori Diagavaya, who is my co-host and best friend. Um, so I wanted to just, she asked me also to just like, record it and start the show with it, even though we didn't have the original recording. So forgive me for looking down, I'm gonna be looking at my computer screen. So like I said, the episode was entitled Blackity Black and Woke AF. And this basically was a statement um, around Prince's blackness. And we also addressed a lot of the protests and things that were sparked by the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota this summer. So here goes, here is my essay. You can also find this online on Medium and it will be on our website, thepurpleparadigm.com. Um, so here goes. So why this episode? And why acknowledging Prince's identity as a black man matters? This has been a tough year. While still in the midst of a global pandemic, I, like many of us, witnessed yet another video of a black man being murdered by law enforcement in Minneapolis, Minnesota. As protests were sparked across the city of Minneapolis, my city, New York, the country, and soon the world, I started taking note of and effectively blocking racists in their commentary from my social media platforms. Some of this commentary came from people I thought I knew and some I had only befriended on Facebook because of our mutual affinity for Prince. Racist commentary by Prince fans was at once shocking and telling, but ultimately not surprising. In general, I've been concerned about the whitewashing of Prince that I have seen. There, there are already a few impersonator acts out there with lead singers dressed up in extremely light brown face portraying Prince. I'm sure they perform with love in their hearts, but a non-black performer imitating a black superstar, while not blackface, I guess, is still in and of itself a not so subtle rewrite of who Prince was. I've also seen certain segments of non-black Prince fans who say that they love and accept Prince, but they don't see him as black because Prince didn't see color and we all bleed purple. These fans tend to stick to the 80s catalog and don't really, go, don't really bother to go much deeper. They certainly don't have much interest in songs Prince wrote exposing the grip colonialism and white supremacy still holds over us all. Songs like Colonized Mind or The War what does he say in the war? Batter up, picture down. What your teachers say, it ain't sound. Pledge allegiance to your flag. You tie me to a truck and then you drag. Then he leads a nod to Gil Scott Heron with the one, two, the evolution will be colorized chant. Um, yeah, dance music, sex romance is way more fun. So I ended up posting about this on my 
I ended up posting my deep frustration about this on social media because I couldn't take what I was witnessing. And I had to say something. An All Lives Matter post pushed me over the edge. I unleashed on someone thoughtfully and I have no regrets. If you are a non-black Prince fan who says all lives matter, I'm here to tell you, Prince was black. Your hero was a black man. I'm also here to tell you that Prince said black lives matter. That means he agreed with and supported the movement because at some point in his early life, before he was Prince, he witnessed and experienced the pain of racism as every person of color does, probably more times than you can even guess. And the flip side of that pain was the joy, laughter, and love and music that black people create to stay afloat. Prince was not created in a vacuum. He came from and was nurtured in the black experience, all of it. He was very clearly de desti destined for greatness. However, he would not be who he was and who he became without his community, the black community. In our first episode, I mentioned that I hadn't brought myself to read Prince's memoir, The Beautiful Ones. I finally read it about a week ago, honestly, to do some research around his life as a black kid in Minneapolis. It was short but beautiful, and it confirmed for me what I've already known. Despite becoming one of the biggest and brightest stars we've ever witnessed, Prince started out in a world just like mine. In fact, his story reminded me of my two brothers who were born respectively the year before and the year after Prince. I can imagine them telling the same stories right down to the vernacular about life, the girls, and high school during that same era. And okay, we can't forget about in his early days, he told interviewers that he was half Italian and half black, and then went on to depict that lineage in Purple Rain. I was always confused and conflicted about this and questioned the reasoning behind it. Perhaps it had less to do with some form of self-hatred than it did wanting to just screw with the heads of the reporters asking about his racial background because of his complexion. I don't know. Nevertheless, it got people talking. Years later, even though most fans generally know that both of his parents were black, I fear it could be a subliminal contributor to the Prince wasn't black, black ideology. Let's not get it twisted. We met Prince with his Afro. Prince left us with his Afro. Prince was black. The hair always tells the truth. So why is all of this so important? Because representation matters. Little black and brown children need to see themselves in heroes of color. They need to believe that they can come from where Prince came from and make it too. They need to learn how he challenged the business model of commodifying music and told artists that categorically they need to own their own work or they will be owned forever by the business. They need to witness how this little black kid from Minnesota grew up and built Paisley Park. During my first visit inside Paisley, I was fairly quiet most of the time. Beyond just processing my emotions, I was truly floored by the fact that he created all of this for himself, a monument to creativity. I've never felt more proud of him. Historic truths need to be told and preserved about our hero and Prince's black fan base cannot be the only ones championing this cause. These issues are important because we need allyship among his fan community members who are not black, who are not black. and an important part of that is acknowledging Prince's background. That means who he actually was and not just what you wanted him to be. So thank you very much. That was my introduction into the show. And now on to the show.
thanks. And he really truly embodied what it meant to have vision. So when I think about it, so I'm an educator here in New York City and you know, we're dealing with school reopening and the, the marginalization of the more, the deeper marginalization of children that's happened within COVID-19 um, and getting everybody iPads and making sure they're geared up and also closing the gap on what was lost within instruction uh, from March to June and tr doing our best to have a more powerful opening where school is uh, not so much about reacting, but in action. I think about children who don't understand or haven't had the opportunity to experience something like a Pingsley Park and know the journey from which it came, right? And really understand that with vision, all things are possible. And when you get to a space where you are, you've quote unquote arrived, that you actually get to create and innovate and sustain towards what you want to build. So I truly appreciated uh, your commentary there, Robert Paisley. Um. Yeah, I just realized that I was not recording, so we just, we won't have that for the video. Read that again. That was beautiful. <laughs> read it again maybe at I'll, the end. Yeah, maybe I'll re-record it and post it when I post the video. But okay, now we are recording. So one last time, if you do not want to be on camera, please turn off your cameras as we continue on with the show. Thank you. Robin, I wanted to tag on to what you were saying about Paisley Park, if I could. Um, you know, I think it, the most important thing, you, your introduction was beautiful, but uh, something I witnessed when the first time I went to Paisley Park, my husband actually took me for my birthday in 2017. It had just opened. It was only open about six months. Um, and there were quite a few like children, I mean, 10, 11 years old. And there was one little girl there and I was, I was shocked. I was blown away because she knew everything. You know, you went into the Purple Rain room. And, mommy, mommy, there's the bike from Purple Rain. And then in the Love Sexy room, Mommy, mommy, there's the polka dots. And, the, and, and she knew so much. And she could sing the songs as she went into the room. And it was obviously the mother had given her that legacy. She was way too young to have lived through any of that. Um, but I think that's the important part of Paisley Park. To some extent, maybe Paisley isn't there only for us or maybe not intended for us, but was really part of an idea of a legacy for the future. Um, because it, it is up to us to kind of put that legacy forward. Uh, but Paisley Park as a museum, as a place you can visit, uh, is very much uh, the, the, the physical brick and mortar place where that can happen. Um, you know, Katerina, I also did want to talk to you. Um, Katerina wrote a paper, um, I think for, was that in 20, you presented 18. in yeah. 2018 yeah. on preserving Paisley Park as a historical landmark. And I, I have love, some slides if people want to see them. I would love to see exciting those slides. slides. I promise they're exciting. I, I would love to. Oh, I read okay. Katerina's paper and I loved it. Thank you so much. Let me see if I can get that PowerPoint up here. There it is. So I, I gave this, let me see if I can see how to go to, um, I've got so much stuff on the screen, I can't see where to go, but here we go, slideshow. 
uh, and then just go to play from start and then it'll look big on my screen. I don't know if people can see that. If you can't see it, just say it in the chat and I'll fix it. Um, but yeah, I gave this paper in uh, 2017. There was a conference called Prince from Minneapolis. Um, it wasn't the first Prince conference, but it was a very large one and it was tied with celebration so it had happened a few days before celebration and then uh, everybody kind of spilled over into celebration um, and I think m many people here in the yeah. chat that I've seen uh, were, were at that celebration I think Arlene Oak is in there uh, and uh, Angela uh, 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 D'Angela's out there, so I know you guys were there. But I want to keep this real fast because if people have questions, I want to give them a chance uh, to talk. But Robin, you were talking about this idea of institutional racism, which people ignore, uh, you know, white people ignore completely, they don't believe it exists. Uh, but one place you can see that institutional racism is in um, sort of the government landmarking of sites. Uh, so there are two ways to get a property landmarked uh, in the United States. One is just the national, you make it a national historic landmark. Any site can be landmarked. Um, people write in to the, uh, to the uh, government of that town, so the mayor of Chanhassen or the, the historic uh, center of Chanhassen, you say, I think Paisley Park should be a historic landmark. And if they get enough uh, people to say that, they can get that done. Uh, to get a building put on the National Register, um, you, you actually have to do an application and actually the owners of the building would have to do it. So that would mean Prince's uh, heirs, the family would actually have to landmark uh, um, Paisley. Uh, there's a couple of um, interesting things about it though. We were talking about you know, institutional racism, very, very few, very few sites in the United States by important African Americans have actually been landmarked. Part of that is because African American sites in the United States tend to get destroyed before anybody has a chance to landmark them or put them on the register. Um, there are a few, I've, I've got some pictures here. Um, just to start with uh, African-Americans, Louis Armstrong's house here in Queens uh, is a nice visit. That was Louis Armstrong's house, not a recording studio. He had a little reel-to-reel -reel back there, but and they, they may have jammed on it, but it wasn't a recording studio. Uh, Michael Jackson's uh, Neverland Ranch, which was a home. You know, he bought it. Uh, uh, the property was already... Uh, a ranch before he bought it and he left it before he died and there wasn't really music created there. It's not the same thing. Um, and uh, I think I have a Nina Simone's childhood home uh, there in the corner. Um, and that is being worked on now. Four artists bought that home before it got destroyed to try to create a Nina Simone historic center there that's in North Carolina. So, uh, but, but uh, um, the one in the corner, <laughs> the one in the top uh, left corner is your boondoggle. That's Graceland. Uh, Graceland is a historic national landmark. Uh, it is on the uh, historic uh, register. It's on the national register. It has every possible protection uh, and can apply for grants, uh, for repairs, and anything it needs. Uh, Graceland is 
the uh, most visited historic house in America after the White House, although I don't think anybody visits the White House right now anymore. H however, it, it's, it's second to the White House normally. Um, the problem is, and I can't say anything bad about, too much bad about Elvis, because like my husband's here, he likes Elvis, but, but Elvis, uh, Graceland was not Paisley Park. It's not Paisley Park. It was not a recording studio. Uh, um, uh, Elvis did one album there called The Jungle Room Sessions, RCA put out, but they ran a recording truck into the house because there was no recording studio in the house. It was not his house. He bought it for his parents, and it was already built in the style that you see it when he bought it. So there's nothing really unique about it to Elvis per se. If we go back to Paisley Park, uh, it is extremely important historically. Uh, and just quickly, I'll say uh, it was made as a recording studio. It's one of the largest intact uh, triple recording studios that an artist designed in the United States right now that was created by an African-American artist and that is visitable by the public. Uh, Prince helped to design the building with the architects. The pyramid uh, skylights were Prince's idea. The windows on only one half of Paisley was Prince's idea. Uh, so he's actually almost like the co-architect of the building. Uh, the actual architects, uh, the people with the plans were Boto Design Architects. Uh, they worked uh, for Prince. They did other buildings for Prince in Minnesota. Um, and actually, there are a lot of people out there on the web who say, I don't like that Paisley Park became a museum and meh, meh, meh. But actually, Prince had started inviting the public uh, to Paisley Park very early. I have some pictures there from a Love for One Another charity event in 1996. Uh, the uh, historic hallway was created in 96. Uh, Prince had people at the house during the musicology period. And then later he did have celebrations and Paisley Park After Dark uh, events at the house. So while he was alive, uh, he envisioned, I am sure, I would bet my life on it, that he wanted Paisley to be visited by the public in the future, either while he was still alive or after he passed. So that was the vision for Paisley. Maybe not in the beginning, but as he matured, as he, uh, you know, was facing his 50s and thinking about the future, uh, he did uh, do that. Uh, and then again, I don't want to take up too much time. I gave myself seven minutes. I've got 21 seconds. Uh, he had four artists work on the on the interior decoration, including uh, Steve Park, uh, who designed some of the uh, dove painting near the ceiling inside the main atrium. Uh, uh, Afshin Shahidi and Sam Jennings uh, designed the uh, influence wall. Uh, and uh, uh, Lula, who uh, did uh, some shirts for uh, uh, Celebration, I think in 2018 or 2019, uh, actually was designing the Purple Rain Room. And they were going over designs uh, when Prince passed. So it never actually happened. But these are pictures from her website uh, where she shows the designs that she submitted 
uh, two prints for consideration for the Paisley Park room, for the, sorry, for the Purple Rain room. Um, one last thing I'll say is Paisley Park uh, is not eligible for the register yet because the building is only um, it's just over 30 years old. It was finished in 1987. Um, so in, 19, in 2037, it'll be 50 years old, and then it can apply for register status. But there's one loophole, and that loophole is if the person in question, if the site is the person's final resting place, then the then the building can go on the National Register immediately. So for example, at Graceland, Elvis was buried in the cemetery with his mother and then fans were desecrating the grave and going out there and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So they moved the bodies to Graceland, but that also gave Graceland the status of being a memorial space and therefore made it eligible for a lot of things before it was really. So one could argue that Paisley Park as a final resting place uh, is, uh, you know, eligible for those statuses. Uh, so I just wanted to put up a picture by Afshin of uh, Prince in our beautiful city of New York uh, walking around uh, by this old uh, Neil Simon Theater. Um, I love that he was in this city and that he loved New York and, and always makes me think of him. So uh, anyway, you know, um, put uh, questions in the chat and while everybody else is giving their paper, I can answer questions uh, if anybody has any about Paisley. I'm gonna stop sharing now if I can find my, there we go. And there we go. I think I stopped sharing. That's quite a secret life as an art historian you have there, Kat. It's very secret. Don't tell anybody. It's, it's a hobby of I mean, mine. It's like, I'm, I'm like, what? Are you Dr. Katarina <laughs> Art historian? Don't tell anyone. Kat, that was amazing. Uh, you've, got, you've got some fans, Kat. So Christina agrees uh, that it needs to be a national register. So Christina, if you, if you want to come on and share you know, your perspective, around what, uh, what's your passion behind it becoming a national register. We also got P. Weiss in agreement. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, um, I, and there's a question for Andre, for maybe for when he comes on. I think um, uh, the issue is anybody can, anybody can suggest a site to be a landmark. We can all write a letter to the Chanhassen Chamber of Commerce and say, we want Paisley Park to be a landmark site. And if they got enough pressure, they do it and they get a plaque and fine. But to have a building put on the National Register, the owner has to do the application. Um, and I know that some people in Minnesota were working with uh, the family to try to motivate them to do that. Um, there are some benefits. So like when there was a leak in the vault, uh, they could have applied for a grant uh, to get that repaired. Or if you wanted to make the egg into an after-school music program space, uh, the National Register would support a grant like that. So there are some benefits to being on the register. The question is, the, in that case, the owner has to make the first step. Hey, Christina, we can't hear you. Are you on? I realized why. I was on a um, 
a lecture just about a week ago about um, Prince's um, important places in Minneapolis. Yes, um, yes. I can't remember her name, but it was fabulous. And I said this during that presentation also that what's frustrating, and I know the estate has to make this happen, that there's many places where a place is privately owned but run by a nonprofit, and the and the the amount of money that can be garnered if a place is a nonprofit is immense. Corporations, private people, foundations, yeah. grants, federal money, state money, local money, and it just frustrates me because I worked at a nonprofit with a very large physical plant. You can't make money and support it by admissions alone. Yeah. When you have roof leaks and foundation problems and all yeah. of that, and I just wish there was some way to communicate or to get some movement going on. Think of all the people who would just even do donations of $50 yeah. to be a member. Definitely. I think I, I, I agree. Corporations who would write it off on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you can't put that place on admissions. You just yeah, it's can't. so nice to meet you, Christina. We've been talking about yes. other stuff. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think they should. Every museum in the country has a membership and members yes. certain perks. And I think they should do that. I also think, you know, a lot of us are in the stamp campaign. Are you in the stamp campaign? No, I write but a letter every year to the U United uh, Postal Service. I mean, we've got a jerk now who's the head of the, but there's a, a branch of the Postal Service that does stamps. So they told me uh, they don't do people unless they're, they've passed away five years. So I, every year I just keep sending the same letter. Okay, it's almost five years, it's almost five years. But they did Gwen Eiffel. I went into the post office last week. I was like, Gwen Eiffel yeah, just died. Gwen Eiffel, But yep. Gwen Eiffel, they gave it to her after four. And I think if there's enough support for a specific individual, they push it forward. Right. So if you wrote that letter and got the form letter back from the United States Postal Service, write it, just send them, I send them one every year on his birthday. Okay. It's almost time. Good stamp. idea. Come on, people. Stamp, stamp. Uh, and that's, I mean, they're doing better, but that's another example of institutional racism. Go I and agree. Look at, look at stamps. They are primarily of whites. Uh, yeah. And unless we force our government to pay attention to our African-American heroes and artists, that includes not only musicians, but writers, thinkers, uh, uh, visual artists, uh, they won't do it. They won't do it. You have to get out there and force them to do it. Okay. Thank you for listening, though. I, like I said, I, I feel like I want to keep sharing this with the universe that we need to protect the place, the legacy, um, that lecture on his um, the uh, redlining and all of that that went on, that the environment that Prince grew up in in Minneapolis. Yes. really needs to be known and Paisley needs to be a nonprofit that's absolutely <laughs> so, anyway thank you thanks so much Christina for your contribution so I noticed that Carlita and Damon came on so welcome I lost them they were here a few seconds How you ago doing? I'm here I'm here <laughs> hey Carlita hey Damon welcome welcome hi guys um, Andre, there is, you know, we, we're, we're going we're gonna, to, of course, dedicate a lot of time to you, uh, Andre, but there is a question for you from P. Weiss. So P. Weiss, you want to ask Andre a question about Paisley? 
Yeah, okay, can you hear me? Sure can. Hi. Yeah, no, I was just wondering if, um, if Prince spoke to him, or Andre, if Prince spoke to you at all about Paisley Park while he was still building it. I know maybe you, may, you maybe weren't in contact as much at the time, but did he at all talk about that vision with you? And if so, in what, in what way? Like, what details can you give us? Well, when we were um, in seventh grade, I don't want to go all the way back, but, but uh, we uh, used to talk about when we were going to become big and make a lot of money. And believe it or not, he drafted <laughs> a whole picture of, of this studio building stuff, um, you know. And uh, I mean, this is back in seventh grade. So, I mean, that's, you know, this is just a dream back then, way before any fame or anything of, of that nature. But as far as Paisley Park, no, I wasn't, uh, when it actually started to um, take place, you know, I was obviously somewhere else doing something else. Um, and uh, I heard about it. And uh, I definitely, you know, because him, him, him and my mother spoke a lot. And she would tell me about, you know, Prince has got this place in his building. And, you know, um, and I just never, it never um, came together for me in terms of a real, a realistic place until he invited me to come out there one day. And I went out there and I was like, oh, man. I was like, I was blown away. I had no idea that that's what he had created. Because, I mean, and you know, the thing is, is that for the longest time, that sketch that he did of that uh, early um, concept was around the house. It was in our, we had a room and it was in the room and it was always, I would see it. So it's, it's very similar to what eventually became Paisley Park. You know, it's just, you know, it was kind of, a, it didn't have the, um, you know, the crystal ceilings and, you know, all that kind of, but aesthetically it was more or less the, the same concept. So obviously he had a long, long vision. So, and, uh, and, and made it happen. Thank you for that. You know, Andre, to your point, uh, the song Paisley Park it was before Paisley Park, you know, a place where people go, the, the whole lyrics are about this place that didn't exist yet. Uh, so to hear that he had it in his mind from way back at the age of 12 or 13 uh, does not surprise me at all because in my mind he he envisioned that for a very very long time so but thank you for that that's very interesting that he thought about that at the age of you know 12 or 13. You're welcome. Uh, I mean definitely without you know it's written without a vision the people perish so I guess he was he was clear on that um, yeah. One of my favorite things I think that around the Blackity Black and Mo KF concept around Prince is his battle with Warners. Um, initially begun as you know they weren't they weren't allowing him to release music as often as he was creating it, um, and then it evolved into um, ownership of masters and being aware that when you create something, do you get to own it? And at the inception of the the battle. He, like he didn't he didn't own purple rain right which is like such a foreign concept because that was like you know that was at the height not not the everything but at the height and he didn't own it so he goes into this this war with warner brothers and he's writing slave on his face um and i remember at the time the awkwardness of a, of a prince fan thinking like are you really a slave you know because you know in my head like prince is like this very successful artist and the idea that you would create and not own what you create and that others would benefit when they had nothing to do with the creation. And basically you're not free. 
you're not free to create. And when you do, you're owned. Um, and in that space, I think that there was a shift uh, within Prince and in his awareness of, you know, where the system worked for you, it eventually consumed you. And your willingness to stand and say no more, right? And what that looks like, and as uncomfortable as it is, and changing your name to an unpronounceable symbol, which uh, post in our, in our post, post Prince world uh, is always recognizable. Um, and, and the brilliance behind that. Our next episode, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's looking at him as a brand. Um, and I know Damon, you had some thoughts on, on this time period and what it meant for other artists forward now because the record industry and uh, is, is no longer the same, right? Artists are releasing things outside of the structure of the traditional record company. And Prince was at the roots of this. I think about musicology when it came out and putting each CD attached to the price tag of a ticket. So for every ticket sold, he sold a CD. I mean, that's just brilliant moves right there, right? Like you don't need a record company when you're giving a you're giving Yeah, yeah, Prince. And for every ticket, there's a CD attached and the album uh, is doing well. So I know Damon, I wanted to bring you into the conversation. And Carlita, you're also welcome to join in. And uh, fam, because we're not fans, you know, you call this family. Keep the questions going and the conversation going, but let's look at Prince a little bit as uh, his battle with Warners and uh, being the victor within that. So Damon? Yeah, I would just add that, uh, you know, Prince was really at the forefront of a lot of the, um, uh, when it came to artists kind of uh, uh, standing up for, for artists' rights and making sure that, um, that his music uh, uh, maintained um, the integrity and that he maintained ownership of that music. What's interesting though is of course, you know, with Prince being a, a writer artist, he owned all of the uh, publishing of his music as well. So that was also um, an opportunity to own things. But those masters, of course, um, you know, really meant a lot. And, and, and when it comes to catalog, um, you know, when, when, when you don't own your catalog, do you really own your music? So, uh, so I, you know, Prince was definitely at the forefront of that. Um, when it came to distributing music electronically, you know, Prince was at the forefront of that. I'm sure all of us uh, were probably uh, members of New Power Generation and, 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 and ordered all the things that, uh, that Prince put up there. And, you know, he's the first one that uh, was thinking about how do I get my music out to people? Can I sell on the digital platform? And now that's the main way that people consume music. So, you know, Prince really was at the forefront of all these uh, incredible innovations. Um, and it really is astounding to see them come to fruition and him not be a part of it or an active part of it, I should say, because of course we see his music on Tidal and Spotify and, and Apple Music and all these other platforms. But, um, but yeah, you know, um, it, it, it really was jarring to see him uh, write Slave on his face. Um, but, you know, I understand what he was doing, right? He was making a statement. Um, we all know that Prince, uh, Prince made some pretty decent money. He probably uh, could have had some better deals, but, uh, but you know, it, it, that, that struggle spoke to plenty of artists. I know the artists that I used to work with, um, that resonated with them, right? They felt the same way. And I think that was Prince's way of even, even kind of, you know, echoing what those forefathers that came before him that weren't able to own any of their publishing, right? or their masters, 
or kind of have a say of, as to what was released by the record companies. So, um, you know, Prince was definitely a, a, a trailblazer when it came to uh, artist rights. Yeah, that's a dope point, Damon, because I mean, think about all the black artists who did not get paid, right? They, 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 um, when it came time for them to pass, they, they passed away penniless. Yeah. And here he was um, within the same package, being able to revolutionize how that looks and moving uh, that legacy forward, you know, for, for, for artists who come behind him. I definitely look at young artists who are coming up now and they're just playing the game totally different. But he, he opened that door. He opened that door. Susan G, you had a comment that I missed, you lost it. Uh, it was a genius and rebellious. Susan, you want to share your thoughts on that? Um, can I say something? Please, Andre, do. Absolutely. Uh, just, just about, um, um, you know, I think it's interesting when you think about, because you, Damon, you're absolutely right about, you know, him being ahead of his time and the way he played the game. Because I think, you know, I think in context, it's good to understand how these things work. Um, because in context, when you sign a record deal, you know, you, um, your record company promotes you. They put literally millions of dollars behind your, you know, making you a household name. It's not like, you know, you're some, somebody, you know, that nobody knows from Minneapolis and all of a sudden everybody knows who you are. Um, your record company actually pays and promotes and does all that kind of stuff, which is wonderful. And, it, and it's obviously worth it because, you know, if you deliver like he did on the kind of music that people, you know, that resonates with people, then, you know, then obviously you strike a chord and then you get to a position where you can then, you know, obviously change the game and write, you know, kind of do it the way you want. But the only thing I would add to what you said is that, you know, because as it were, model for, um, you know, up and coming artists, I think where it's at now, and I, I think it's important to address this just as, a, as an artist, because the game has changed. And if anybody's seen that uh, Daniel E.K. Spotify thing where, you know, uh, in other words, artists are lazy unless they're delivering tons and tons of music to him so he can exploit artists and make a whole bunch of money. I just think that the game has got to a point where people need to make it change. Artists need to obviously speak out, but in terms of what, you know, if you, if you wanna talk about what Prince, you know, set forth, I think we gotta take it a step further because now artists aren't making any money at all. It's kind of a joke. Um, I have a comment. I think that's important. Great point. Yes, Carlita. Hi. Hi, everybody. Um, well, you know, me as like the younger generation of Prince fan, you know, I I didn't live through the whole craze, the whole Purple Rain, none of that. Um, but it's been it's been very educational for me as a as an artist, as a photographer. If y'all didn't know, I'm a photographer, and. Um, you know, um, just seeing his, uh, just definitely like his work ethic and how adamant he was about owning his own work um, definitely played a big part in what I wanted to do as an artist. And I wanted to make sure that all of my stuff was on my website. All of my stuff is under my name. And it's, it's really important that, you know, the young generation continues his legacy, you know what I mean? And I'm glad that Paisley Park is so open for, you know, I went to Paisley Park for the first time last year, you know, and um, it was a very eye-opening experience. And I'm like, this needs to stay here forever, you know? Um, and a lot of times people 
are have kind of like this weird misconception about like oh well prince wouldn't want that prince wouldn't want this honestly i'm just glad that more people are getting into his music now especially people that are my age you know because people don't really like people know about prince but people don't know like no prince you know and like it's a beautiful thing that his music is on streaming services like i'm glad because i never got past purple rain until you know unfortunately he passed because it wasn't available to me and i wasn't able to find it unless i was on like youtube and stuff like that you know and um you know it's been it's been very important for me to like tell my friends like you should listen to more prince you should get into him like you should you should listen to everything else that he has other than just like his 80s stuff you know and um you know i i love you guys I, that's all i want to say <laughs> see ya um so i just want to round out this whole uh part of the conversation um in my paper i mentioned and i spoke about allyship so i want I want to ask all of you, what does allyship mean to you from our Black, African-American, Latino, people of color? What, what does allyship mean? Like, what would you want to see? What do you want to hear from non-persons of color in terms of allyship? Because if you think about it as a Prince community, we are a community. Right. So I want to know what that means to you and to my um, non people of color Prince fans. I want to know what allyship means to you and what you think you can do to help the cause. So I want you guys to put some things in the chat and then just light up the chat. We love to see different commentary. And then we're going to ask a few of you to come on and speak about it. Okay. Um, Didi says, I used to play for coworkers while driving to lunch. Okay, for me, it's, for this is from Rashida. She says, for me, it's checking anyone they hear making a racist comment. There's some love for, for Carlita. <laughs> And PYC, yeah, we're definitely going to talk to Andre later about um, his music that he's been uh, creating on these racist shoes. Oh, they go. Okay. Being, okay, here's from Christina. Um, she says, being an ally means taking responsibility to educate themselves. Do not ask people of color what they can do. Yes, definitely. Any other comments? Okay, here's a couple that just came in all at once. Okay, I have to read fast. Um, okay, from Kikabo, she says, um, to me, you can't be a true Prince fan if you do not understand that Black Lives Matter. Allyship looks like non-persons of color having uncomfortable conversation among their peers and not asking people of color to do the work. Um, okay. And Zinzi, uh, in my opinion, it means having non-Black people educate their people about white supremacy and how it affects the entire global population. It isn't the responsibility 
of black people to teach everyone else what we didn't start. Okay, here's from LS. It says, as a white person, I try to speak to other white people about what I understand about being a better ally. I listen intently to black writers, black friends. Um, and then Christina also says, as a white person, it is on me to become educated. Oh, there's a thunderstorm happening. Um, okay, sorry about that. I got distracted. As a white person, it is, become, uh, it is on me to become educated and make my voice heard within with other white people. Okay, so I would like to ask um, Christina to maybe if she wants to speak more on that. Christina, are you with us? If you feel like coming off mic and talking to us for a second, you don't have to turn your camera on if you don't feel comfortable. Christina. Uh, there we go. Oh, it's there you go. So I don't look so great. <laughs> But um, the big thing for me is I'm a student, uh, a student of the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. So to me, they go hand in hand. And um, so I'm already sort of well versed in how much black history has been erased and lost. And people don't understand like things as simple as the Electoral College is from the Civil War. And we need, to, we need to regain the history of African Americans even before the Civil War, the 400 years that's just been erased out of our school books. So I constantly preach to people, it's not on you, I mean, people of color are not here to make you smarter. You have to do it yourself and study the early um, civil rights movements and study the Civil War and learn that people, I'm a, a Yankee, but I go down South and I said, you gotta understand that the Yankees were no better in terms of race relations. So wake up people, we are still battling the results of the Civil War. And in the Civil War, the North was just as guilty as of so much racism and horrible shit, sorry. Um, <laughs> and people think that, you know, it resolved everything. So I just constantly preach education. Educate yourself, don't, it's not persons of color's job to make you smarter about this. You have to do it. So. And the, great, the good news about what you're saying, uh, Christina, is after George Floyd was murdered, like for the next month or so, I haven't paid attention since then, but in terms of the New York Times bestseller list, I don't know if anybody caught uh, that, but the, like the- How to be an anti-racist. Yeah. Anti like, yeah. yeah. Yep. Ability, understanding white supremacy. Tennessee Coates, like all these authors. So I'm hopeful that what you're saying is is true. Right. Um, in, but I don't want people of to just you know, read really being able to step into yeah. space. Yeah. I, I would add, you know, I have the privilege of being uh, 
a professor and I get access to young people, uh, you know, hundreds of young people. And I feel like it's my duty uh, to uh, show them art and show them uh, works that, that aren't typically shown in the textbook, that didn't make the textbook, that aren't uh, on the walls at the Met or the Brooklyn Museum. That, that's my, because otherwise they could stay home and read the textbook, which was, which has its own institutionalized, racist, biased nonsense. They don't need me. What they need me for is to fill in what's missing. Otherwise, I don't know what they're paying me for. So I, I tried to do that as much as possible. And if people could do that, if you have an opportunity to reach out uh, to younger people through your work or through your activism or through your job, you know, if you can fill in those blanks, then you give young people, and my room is everybody, right? You know, I teach at a community college in Brooklyn. It really is like a meeting of the UN every single morning. And, uh, it, but it's my responsibility to teach all of them about the things that aren't in the book. Uh, so I think if we have those opportunities and that privilege, we should use that uh, as a way to promote uh, artists of color and people who uh, are not being taught e even still uh, by the museums and by the textbooks. I have a comment about, um, may I? I want to go bounce off of what Kat was saying. Um, you yeah, know, yeah. I, really I really appreciate Kat because, um, you know, love you. <laughs> Um, you know, as an artist of color, as a photographer of color, um, I was motivated to go out to shoot um, photos of the protests, mostly because um, I wanted to change the narrative um, because people thought that all of the protests out here were like violent and like, you know, cop cars were getting set on fire. And all. I mean, it was, but like, I saw more humanity in those protests than I have ever seen in my entire life. And, um, I definitely went out there to change the narrative. You know, um, it was really hard. Like as a as a woman, as a woman of color, stepping out and putting myself on the line for that. And you know, um, it's you know, I wanted to change the story. Like, and and that's why it's important to support photographers of color. Make sure you support your photographers of color that you know. We need to change that narrative that everything is violent, everything is chaos because it's not. You know, people are educating themselves. I've learned more about the law in in that time that I've been at those protests than what I've learned in school or my entire life. You know what I mean? And it's important for us to create the narrative. It's important for us to create the narrative and we gotta continue that. So thank you, Kat. Um, just a plug for Carlita. Um, a couple of her pictures were actually used in an Apollo documentary because she captured the marquee and they saw value in her work. And when they were talking about the Apollo's part in activism, they used a couple of her photos. I was so excited when I saw them on the screen. Can I say something? Um, Please, Enzi, hey. Hi, um, number one, um, as for protests, my take is, actually is really not that unique, but it may be unique among different populations. Um, I grew up in a family that was very active in the Black Power Movement, and I was born in the 60s. Um, at this point, I have no apology about the fact that 
no one has the right to tell us how to protest period point blank at all like that's off the table and we do not have the obligation to oh yeah it was you know there were peaceful protests so what so what <laughs> really so what you know um i have been dealing you know i'm very happy that people on a grand scale are starting to fight back and starting to realize what i've realized since birth um and it seems that it's going to be long term because i've seen this too i've seen this movie before several times and i hope it's you know long lasting but you know any way that i decide that i want to fight the system that is basically designed to go against me no one can say anything about that just can't um as for bringing you know the conversation back to uh prince i'm very happy that carlita brought your um perspective up thank you very much i have a 23 co-worker that has been a diehard prince fan since she was a kid that's good parenting <laughs> you know um and i hope that that continues you know i know a lot of adults a lot of older adults are really against streaming and things like that and i understand even though i'm a tech you know <laughs> um but i think that's how people get to learn about it so thank you everybody Thank you, Zinzi. Okay, so we're gonna move along a bit um, because we definitely still wanna get to Andre. We have a lot of really awesome questions for Andre, but next we would like to introduce Dr. Lynn. She's gonna be doing a presentation on Prince's blackness through lyrical expression. And then we're gonna have an, op you, all of our guests are gonna have an opportunity to chat with Lynn and ask her questions about her piece. So Lynn, if you are ready to roll, Oh, you're muted, Lynn. Unmute. Lynn, are you, you're sharing something, right, Lynn? Yes. Okay, let me just saying. Uh, Could you share my screen. Yep, got you. I'm good. You are extraordinary. <laughs> okay, where is my? Oh, there it is. And we go here. Oh wait, I'm sorry. I have to close the. Sorry. There we go. Okay, so there's a lot to discuss, but in this presentation, we're going to examine four broad categories, identity, commentary, witticisms, and the N-word. So let's begin with identity. When you look at the songs on the first two albums, For You and Prince, you see that Prince deals with love and relationships. There is no racial expression. But as you move on to the next few albums, there's a sort of racial ambiguity. In Uptown on Dirty Mind, he vaguely mentions race, everyone together in musical harmony, black, white, Puerto Rican, just a freaking. In the title track of Controversy, he plays with his own identity. Am I black or white? Am I straight or gay? Then later on in the song, he says he wishes there were no black or white. And by the time we get to Purple Rain, the kid is a biracial character who sings and when doves cry, maybe I'm just like my father, too bold. Maybe I'm just like my mother, she's never satisfied. Celie McGinnis discusses this in his book, The Lyrics of Prince, Rogers Nelson, a literary look at a creative music poet, philosopher, and a storyteller. 
He says, like most African-Americans, the kid is celebrated for his final success and his success is celebrated in a manner that erases the specific hurdles and struggles of race so that he may be connected to the larger white audience. He goes on to say about when doves cry, it's not just about dysfunctional parents, it's about the struggle of the mulatto existence, the struggle of attempting to marry two fundamentally different perspectives of life. So later on in his career, Prince more readily identifies himself as a black man. In Don't Play Me, for instance, he sings, I'm the wrong color and I play guitar. Now, when I mentioned this to my friend Daryl, he pointed me toward the lyrics in the song, What's My Name? You can slap my face, but I, but I gotta say it. You never would have drank my coffee if I'd never served you cream. It seems that Prince alludes to the fact that he hadn't, if he hadn't appealed to audience, white audiences first, his more black music wouldn't have even gotten heard. But Prince also created an alter ego in which he could express his blackness. McGinnis talks about the Times role. It is obvious that the time is an alter ego of Prince, created to hold Prince's R&B audience while he explores other musical genres. Where Prince is introverted, abstract, and whimsical, the time is extroverted, realistic, and straightforward. Where Prince is indefinable in clothing and music styles, the time is black. He also says that America is forced to take the time humorously, or it would have been forced to face the misconceptions about the dimensionality of the black race, especially if it were to accept Prince as the driving force behind the band. I submit that the MPG project, Gold Nigga, allows Prince, along with Tony M, to express his black side as well, with its themes of racism and problems in the black community in songs like Deuce in the Quarter, Black MF in the House, and Together. Along with politics and religion, Prince often included race in his social commentary. I've divided those songs into three categories, racism and racial disparity, the effects of slavery and oppression, and injustice. Songs like We March, Colonized Mind, and United States of Division speak to the racial disparity in America. In The Sacrifice of Victor, Prince discusses being bust due to the desegregation of Minneapolis schools and the impact of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. had on him and his friends. Prince even asserts that Abraham Lincoln was a racist in Avalanche before going on to mention the unfair treatment of black musicians in a later verse. Then there is the song Race on the Come album. It seems that whenever a discussion of race comes up, the lyrics, race in the space I mark human, and cut me, cut you, both the blood is red from the chorus are quoted as a way of saying, Prince doesn't see color. But when you look, when you go through the verses, Prince talks about racial separation, the fallacy of white superiority and false history. Prince is letting the audience know that we are humans too, but, we, uh, but have not always been treated as such. Even in his contributions to both Tevin Campbell's I'm Ready and Mavis Staples' The Voice on the Paisley Park label, Prince makes statements about dealing with oppression and racial injustice in America. In Family Name, he laments African Americans' loss of their names because of slavery. 
He also mentions the rape of black women by white men in the second verse of Black Muse. And although he did not write it, Prince offered a soulful cover of the staple singers, When Will We Be Paid, in which the last verse says, we've given up our sweat now and all of our tears stumbled through this life for more than 300 years. Now, we can talk about uh, injustice for the next hour, but I will point to Prince's need to make his audience aware of the unjust treatment of blacks in America whether it's part of a 45-minute rant in the war, the song we heard at the beginning and that Robin mentioned already, where he mentions that there are two versions of history, your history and mine. And to repeat what Robin said, what your teachers say ain't sound. Pledge allegiance to your flag, you tie me to a truck and then you drag. Or an open letter to Mr. Mann where he lets them know that we might not be at the back of the bus but his show feel just the same. Prince also points out the depiction of black people in the media in the work part one. Every time I watch the pe other people news, I see a false picture of myself, another one of you. And in the song Style, he simply states that style is when all black men are free. Prince believed in the Black Lives Matter movement. He held a rally for peace in Baltimore to, to support the protesters in response to the death of Freddie Gray. He penned the song Baltimore, which begins with the words, nobody got in nobody's way, so I guess you could say it was a good day, at least a little better than the day in Baltimore. Does anybody hear us pray for Michael Brown or Freddie Gray? Now, witticisms. Witticisms are cleverly witty and often biting ironic remarks. Those little digs that Prince would make at his white audience. In dance music, sex, romance, all the white people clap your hands on the floor, making fun of the way Dolores danced, dancing like a white girl, screaming like a white girl in black sweat. And in The Bird, Prince and Morris Day let white folks know that if they stop being so tight, they might get some tonight. And finally, the use of the N-word. I had a discussion with another fan who told me that Prince would never use that word. She was either in denial or she just didn't pay attention to the lyrics. Here's a list of 12 songs in which the word nigger or nigga is used. I believe that Prince used the word in his writing as part of the expression of his black self. In The Sacrifice of Victor, he mentions being called out of his name by his white classmates. And in Don't Play Me, he says, Maybe how you call us niggas ain't the same. Prince even contributed a song to the soundtrack of Spike Lee's Bamboozled, a movie that is the satirical look at stereotypical depictions of black people in the media and the impact of the N-word. In 2045 Radical Man, he breaks the word down and reassigns the meeting, pointing out that they, they come in all colors. I think that Kurt Loder's soundbite in Props and Pounds sums up Prince as a black mainstream artist who was able to express himself lyrically and appeal to multiple audiences. Here was somebody that's obviously playing rock and roll who is also a funk artist who covered a lot of categories into which artists have been separated for so long and brought them together effortlessly. Thank you. Lynn, Dr. Lynn. 
You're dope, sis. Thank this you. Why this is exact? So, Lynn, thank you for um, answering the call. Exactly why uh, Robin and I put this, this platform forward. We know the answer is in the fans. Um, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Uh, it was dope. It was dope. Uh, if anybody wants to, like, Lynn, do you have any other comments or, or uh, if anyone has any I'm questions? Family name. Okay, let's okay. do it. Family name. Well, um, you know, I, I was given ten minutes, so I cut out a lot because I, I, I know you know the answers, girl. So <laughs> I wanted well, to the, be the ten minutes was for the presentation, but now we <laughs> give you time to interact with the community by having them ask you questions and you know share okay well what i did was um i went through and i have my little chart with all the lyrics on it and um but family name we actually were talking about family name last night um um like i like it was said i saw prince 34 times and my favorite concert the one that i'll always remember was one night alone i was in second row center i you know i was so they excited but the thing that was exciting to me is when he when they played Family Name and the screens were showing the slave papers and all the different things that were flashing on the screen during that, that song, I was blown away. You know, I'm not gonna lie, uh, Rainbow Children had to grow on me. After I saw it live, that became my favorite album because the way it was presented at that concert was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And, and it just, it just said so much. So family name, yes, <laughs> that's all I'm gonna say. So um, I'm, I'm looking at the chat, but it's moving so fast. Again, a lot of love, Lane, uh, Lynn, around the presentation. And uh, yeah, family name for me, like I shared last night, you know, my last name is Diego Vaya, Portuguese. And I am, you know, both my parents were black from Trinidad. And I'm very clear on the fairness. And I've always wondered, is the fairness out of rape? Is the fairness out of the mixing of the races? Because there is definitely strong African roots. Uh, my side, there's European yeah, African experience. And my father's side as well. Um, and I think that you know, being born in Brooklyn with Caribbean roots, it really begs the question for me around, you know, where does his name come from? Because he knows it's Portuguese, so of something, of Govaya. And I know it's a city, and I know that my great-grandfather was from Madeira, which is, um, which is an island off of the coast of Portugal. And I can't help but think about indentured servants that were brought to the Caribbean and how that plays a role in it. Um, and then fast forward to the African-American experience of Nelson, because Princess Nelson, well, who is Nell? Right and Johnson and you know and those type of those names Freeman and where your family name comes from so please you know jump into that I think it's a really rich the conversation that that he was bringing forth around who we are as people and who we think we are and really what are our roots. I, you know, I, just, I was saying last night that my father's from South Carolina. Our last name is Stratford. I don't know where that came from. You know, um, Stratford is usually spelled with a T somewhere along the line that the T got changed to a D in the middle. And, you know, um, so 
you know, you can make assumptions about where our last name came from. Someone's not on mute beyond the speakers, and that's what we're hearing the humming. Thank you for that in the chat. If you're not talking, please make sure that you are on mute. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thanks, Robin. Oh, it's Robin's muted. She's saying something. Hold on. <laughs> Um, okay, so, oh, now we're going to go to, we're going to have a little game. I know everybody wants to get to Andre, and we definitely want to get to Andre as well. We're going to get to him next. But before we hop into our conversation with Andre, we just want to play the sound off game. Um, Maury, do you want to explain how that works? All right, so in honor of Lynn's presentation, we're going to play sound off looking at the two songs of Dreamer and Colonized Mind. So the way Sound Off works is that DJ Raspberry, AKA our secret art historian in the room, is going to play a snip of each song. If you are team Dreamer, you're gonna use uh, high five. If you are uh, team Colonized Mind, you're gonna use a thumbs up and thank you Raspberry for demonstrating. All right, so Dreamer, high five, colonize mine, thumbs up. And with that, Robin and I are gonna go on mute because Robin, I'm hearing you, I'm hearing myself. Oh. <laughs> Great guys, so let me just share my screen. I'll bring up my title. All right, share, there we go. I'm gonna play about a minute of Mr. Uh, Dear, uh, wait, we said Dear Mr. Man, and then a minute of colonize mine. Is that correct? Just nod if that's correct. Okay. Oh no, it was Dreamer. It was Dreamer. I'm sorry. So Dreamer first.
Okay, I'm going to stop the share. And uh, uh, Maury, I, I think you, you can uh, remind us, is it, it's uh, a high five for a dreamer, I believe. And it's uh, uh, um, for thumbs up for a colonized mind. Thumbs up for well, I, I got to do both. I'm sorry, peeps. I got to do both. There's one. There's the other. Sorry. They're both awesome. I'm with Kat, both of them. I no, think. Too awesome. <laughs> Too awesome. Can't choose. Sorry. Me neither. <laughs> if I had to choose, I'd go with Dreamer. But I do love Colonized Mind. I love I love Dreamer for that driving guitar, but I love Colonized Mind for what it says. Yes. So I'm, seeing a lot of, I'm seeing a lot of claps. Yeah, I think the majority of the people who voted did claps, which is which song? Dreamer. Dreamer. Okay, Dreamer. so Dreamer is our winner. And that's very appropriate because you guys may not have realized it, but Robin and I were gone for two seconds because why do I beat Con Ed? My lights just blinked. Yeah, the, <laughs> we, we lost the show. We, were like, we were frozen. The show was going on, but we weren't there. That's how that's how that <laughs> family Con Ed's in the hole this week. We don't even bring up their name this week, please. Yeah, we went out for a second and everybody was like, while Robin and I were still going. <laughs> no, but, um, you know, I looked through so many lyrics of so many songs, but, you know, I had to narrow it down. Um, and, you know, and I, and I talked to some people and, you know, like I mentioned my friend Daryl, he's on, he's on here somewhere. You know, because um, I would call him with ideas, and um, I had a whole nother section, um, you know, talking about Prince incorporating hip hop into his music. But I left that part out, so that's for another discussion for another time. All right, let's see you working your way into another episode, Lynn. I, <laughs> I, I wasn't even I wasn't even thinking that way. I just had you know I just I mean I love Prince's music, and I you know and I and I listen to lyrics. And there are a lot of artists that I don't deal with because they have nothing to say. You know, it's it's one thing to have a good beat, but that only goes for so far. You know, sometimes I'll listen to someone like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. And I'm completely turned off. And that's one of the things I liked about Prince is that, and that's why I became such a fan. I mean, I liked him before Sign of the Times, but the first time I heard Sign of the Times, it was like the skies opened up and like, Sign of the Times is the first song to ever mention AIDS publicly. You know, that was a big deal. And it wasn't until a few years later when TLC mentioned it. And so, you know, when I listened to the lyrics of Sign of the Times for the first time, I was like, this right here, this right here, this is not Purple Rain. And it totally changed my whole thinking about Prince. And, I, and then I started listening to what he had to say. Thank you for that, Lynn. 